Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Purple Insider is presented by Oakley. Express yourself. Build a look that's made for you. When you wear Oakley, there really is more than meets the eye. Try it for yourself. Oakley is not only the best looking, but the best quality. So head on over to oakley.com for more information today. joining me because I am launching a new little bit we're going to do here on the show because it is June and there isn't much breaking news outside of delusional Packers fans thinking that their players are going to be better than Justin Jefferson online. So uh, we don't deal in delusions here, but we do deal in Vikings history. So each week we're going to look at a random old game of the week and it truly is random i just started asking people hey give me a game that vikings fans might not remember but was actually awesome and our friend sam ekstrom said you gotta go back and look at that 09 game between the vikings and baltimore ravens and of course judd you were covering this game so we're going to talk mm-hmm. all about this and maybe make some comparisons to modern day go through some of the things that we uh, would have remembered from this game, but then also things that we didn't because both of us watched this back and uh, we'll have a fun time. And I think this is better than going through classic games that everyone remembers because watching this back, this was an amazing game. And also kind of, this is a mid-October game in 2009, but a turning point to be able to say like, wow, this Vikings team is not only 6-0 and after beating Baltimore, spoiler alert, we're going to cover wins, uh, but also the offense taking this huge explosion with Brett Favre, and he's throwing rockets and fastballs everywhere, and uh, it, it feels like it was kind of one of those, hey, the Vikings are really for real with this offense. So a really fun game, Judd, to go back and watch. And so just to, to uh, set this up too, what this was was 2009. Favre, of course, joins the, you know, he's not going to join the team. He's not going to join the team. Joins the team, shockingly, after the Mankato portion training camp. And the first two games, the Vikings won against Cleveland at Cleveland and at Detroit. And those two games were like Favre was fine, but he wasn't outstanding. And it was sort of the Adrian Peterson show. And so I remember at the time, writing, you know, hey, Brett Favre has clearly returned here to become a game manager. He's doing a great job. Like, this is the new Brett Favre. And then, of course, uh, the home opener, week three, San Francisco, the Greg Lewis game, that all changes. And so this is where we firmly, I think, by week six got into the, oh, my God. Like, Brett Favre is now, that that's, you know, the San Fran win was incredibly impressive, but that's one game. So this now we're to a point where at six and zero oh, it's like oh oh the vengeance the far vengeance is real 
And so this game was a very defining, important game because I think it really signified just how much Favre was going to chase a potential MVP and how much he was not brought in to, in his mind, manage the game. He was brought in to try and whoop teams, including his former Packers team twice. And uh, just a note before we get deeper into this, when it comes to Brett Favre and also Ray Rice, we're just going to focus on the football players here and not anything else involving Brett Favre and Ray Rice, because Ray Rice had an, an amazing game that we need to talk about as well. So this one starts out uh, with Brett Favre and, and the Vikings offense just jumping all over the Ravens, and they start up 17-3. to Something that I really noticed, though, Judd, because I want to make observations across the board also about the playing style, that team Favre himself and everything we kind of learned from re-watching this game. And also this uh, takes you a little behind the scenes for both of us that we have hobbies of going back and watching old games. So this is how I would talk to you about this on the sidelines of TCO Performance Center after I watched some old game. But what I noticed the most about this offense that I didn't remember or really realize is how involved the big people were. So as Kevin O'Connell's going back and saying, how can I use that Josh Oliver? How can I use my two tight end systems? Can I mix in a CJ Ham successfully this year? I was surprised because I didn't realize it was Vasante Shanko, Klein Saucer's out there. They're running a fullback at a lot of times and defenses are having to load up. And then he just kept whipping the ball to either CJ Wright or uh, not CJ, uh, Sidney Rice Sydney or Rice. Uh, or Vasante Shanko or, you know, checking it down to tight ends. But I didn't realize how much big personnel they were using in that offense. So, th- and this was classic Brett too. Um, so, in the 90s, if you go back, Brett actually, you know, absolutely in Green Bay, loved his tight ends. Mark Chimura, Keith Jackson, who came from Philadelphia. Um, and so, you know, Shanko, who was signed, I think as a free agent in 2000, was it 2007? And was a complete bust that year. He couldn't catch the ball. It was terrible. He had become, by 2009, an instrumental part of the offense. And Favre loved his tight ends. And the, the thing that I had covered... In 2000, I think it was three, My the first of my two years on the Packer beat was Sidney Rice became his Javon Walker. Like, Brett always had the ability to turn one guy into this unbelievable career season, oh my God, Pro Bowl player. And the year that I had covered uh, the Packers in 03, Javon Walker went from this high draft pick, sort of a bust, to phenomenal year. Well, in this case, it it was Rice, who, if I'm not mistaken, had been a second-round pick, had been injured a ton, real disappointment, and Brett Favre at some point in time decided, I'm going to make this guy. And so it very much fit the Favre template. And we all know, too, Brett Favre loved his big men. He loved the fullbacks. He loved the tight end. So this was sort of quintessential Favre at his best, which is, I'm going to get everybody involved and and I'm also going to use tight ends, fullbacks as much as I possibly can, where at this point in time, too, I think the league was sort of going not away from that, but certainly not everyone was doing it. Brett Favre didn't care. 
Yeah, it was definitely going more toward three wide receiver already in 2009. Sometimes we talk about, you know, a decade and a half ago as if it was like 1993. But offenses had already started to modernize and we were coming out a little bit. And that's what's sort of ironic about the Adrian Peterson era is it it is on the coattails of where running backs had peaked in the early 2000s with your Sean Alexanders and so forth. And he's coming out of that. So he's like that next wave as the league is starting to shift over to the passing. But I feel like it also made life hellacious on defenses to have Favre with the ability to throw in between linebackers the way he did and also have these big men out there. And that's the thing about Favre that maybe we don't give him enough credit for in hindsight is how good he was at knowing when to check down. I mean, he's famous for the interceptions that he's forcing the ball, but 90% of the time he's making a lot of really good decisions in this game. And I, and I also had the thought about Sidney Rice because he is one of the like all time kind of one year wonders, maybe not in NFL history, but definitely in Viking history. And there's a play early in the game where he runs kind of a slant over the middle and Favre throws the fastest football that has yes. ever been launched by any human being. And it just sticks to Sidney Rice. And I think Dan Deardorff, which is interesting because they're playing the Ravens. So it's Deardorff and Gumble, which probably never called Vikings game. And they're like, what a catch. And it was like, it was it what a catcher did that just stick in him like a dartboard i mean it was amazing how he made this guy who had a, a relatively average skill set and there's nothing he does in this game that blows you away except for Farb is just putting it on him over and over and over again into these tight windows can we talk about also Farb's not just his release of the football but his footwork to make throws where he sets himself and like every throw Went back and watched it, and I had forgotten this. It's like, how did he not throw his shoulder out on that throw? Like, his plant and throw, and, like, you can see why <laughs> at key times it cost him. Because his confidence to what you're saying about threading the ball in there was so high because he threw fastballs. Like, those are like Roger Clemens fastballs. But I just think his footwork and his plant to throw is so interesting because, you know, the majority of guys now, a lot of them have good arms. But does anybody have that like violent a footwork? It was almost like Far was jumping and throwing, and it's like I I honest to God thought like three times, how did his arm not just like come out of the socket there? I I love going back and watching it because I don't think we've seen a lot of guys, especially now, who have the mechanics that Brett Favre did. I don't know of almost anybody. It's there's sort of these relics of how to do things as a quarterback. There used to be the straight drop back. So when you watch John Elway, you're like, what is he doing? Why is he dropping straight back with his shoulders or the Warren moon opposite drop back where he would drop back and his shoulders would be pointing toward his left. And then he would spin around and throw like nobody would do that. Now you'd probably get sacked like 500 times if you were trying to do that anyway. And Favre had this, Remember how relievers who threw 97, now it looks like, oh, 97, they're just flinging it in there. Right. But they used to fall off the side of the mound, and you'd always have some broadcaster in baseball being like, well, you know, he throws hard, but he can't feel this position because he's fallen off to the side. That's what Favre looks like in this. And I was also amazed, too, at how open some of the guys were. And I guess you could speak to this because the, the offensive scheme – obviously did not carry through with Chile from year to year to year, 
to, and a part of that is just far falling off and injuries and everything else the following season. But Shanko and Bernard Berrien, I mean, these guys are wide open for touchdowns in this game. Was it like the league being a little surprised by the way they were using Favre or was like Brad Childress better at his job than we remember? Or was it Favre just making the right decisions? Because it seems like in this game, the Ravens shouldn't have a bad defense. And yet there's guys wide open all over the place. I I think it's a few things. I think one thing was, you know, Brad Childress came here and put in the West Coast, as he said, kick-ass offense. But the reality is, like, Brett was the professor of that. By this point in time, Brett Favre, like, I'm sure Brad called plays, okay? But Favre checked to things. Favre knew exactly what he was doing. So I I hesitate to give Brad a lot of credit. It was basically Brett who ran the the show. And by this time, keep in mind, too, Daryl Bevel was actually calling plays. And Bev and Favre were tight. And so it was basically, hey, Brett, go, go be Brett. Um, but I, I know what you're talking about, and there is no question about it. I think that flat out, and it's, you know, it's what, 2009 to now, 13 years or so, 14 years after the fact. I think there is no question, and I saw this on both sides too, and I, I guess I didn't appreciate it at the time or now as much as I, I did in watching this, Matthew, but, you know, to call a spade a spade, cornerback play wasn't that good. Like in this game cornerback play and look there were certain corners at the time who were very good i'm not saying that there weren't but i feel like a lot of corners now who probably aren't considered shut down guys are probably far more skilled and if you go back and watch the vikings defense in that game same thing i mean joe flacco is schooling them and you know i i at the time not a bad player but as i i recall uh Benny Sapp got a lot of playing time back then. And I don't know that Benny Sapp would qualify to play in the league in any type of role today. And so I think it's a combination of things. I think it's arm strength. I think it is the the fact that Brett was, you know, Shanko was good. Rice was, you know, great that season. Percy Harvin was a guy that had to be accounted for constantly. Berrien at that time was pretty doggone good. So I, I think it was also difficult um, but flat out, I know exactly what you're saying. And I'm going to say, I think cornerback play in 2009, probably not near what it is as far as competency now in 2023. Yeah. And, uh, in this game, Percy Harvin, kind of a non-factor, which I think if I told you that they were going to score 33 points, that he basically did nothing in this game, you'd be pretty surprised. Well, you're ahead of me a little bit in my notes, because one of the things I wrote down as in this game, the Ravens start to come back. And the reason is because of the secondary with the Vikings. But this is is really telling about football a little bit. Uh, I think it's a good example to like how I would explain this. A few years ago, PFF put out something that sort of showed that the secondary performance had more to do with your overall success as a defense than your pass rush. And I think people got like a little weird about that because pass rush does affect the secondary. But, you know, good example here where Jared Allen is getting after Joe Flacco time after time after time. He is getting beat up through this entire game, and it does not matter. He's pushing the ball down the field. Also, early career Joe Flacco, what a cannon. Um, I yes. don't think he was the most accurate, and he missed. Oh my gosh, he missed a couple of wide open throws in this game. <laughs> the deep throw. They're like, yes, where the guy's just running completely free, but he gets smacked on the play. 
And there's a bunch of plays in this game where he gets crushed. And I think this was one of the, like, if there was one weakness to this all-time great Vikings team led by Favre and led by Jared Allen on the defensive side, it was the secondary. And you saw it there, how you can't just, like, stop a quarterback from hitting people, even if he's getting beat up a little, when receivers are wide open. I'm not sure what the PFF grades were at the time um, or if, if they've gone back and done them. But, you know, Cedric Griffin, number 23, was a key cornerback on that team. And I'm going to tell you right now, not that good. As I recall, Tyrell Johnson, who I think was a second-round pick in 2008, was at safety. Not that good. So, yes, there is no question that Vikings team, for the most part, and they had a ton of success doing it, often had to outscore teams. Like, they they had... They could stop the run really, really well, which they, they had a, like a four-year period where phenomenal because of the Williams wall against the run. But there is no question that secondary was a little bit scary. Um, and that's where Favre came in because Favre, as we see in this game, can basically say, okay, screw it. Like, and, and that's the thing, too. It's hard to appreciate now, and, and we saw this uh, to Kirk's credit and O'Connell's credit last season, but... Matthew, how long did we watch Vikings games where that type of fourth quarter comeback was really, really rare? Like Brett Favre, they they go down. Brett Favre's not like, oh my God, we're down. He's like, yeah, let's go. And you can see it. And and I think the thing is, at the end of 2000, so end of 2007, in, in his last year as a Packer, when he threw that awful pick against the Giants in the conference title game at Lambeau, and then, of course, at the end of 2009, same thing against the Saints, Favre had such superior confidence in his arm that he made dumb throws. But like in this game, you're exactly right. I mean, there were a lot of really sound, really great throws. Brett Favre certainly had some problems when when he got overconfident and the pressure was on and he tried to be the difference. But there were a lot of games where he flat out was the difference. And this game is like a perfect example of a game that Favre took by the throat and said, we're not going to lose. Folks, I know you have heard me talk a ton about my Oakley sunglasses this summer, but the more I wear them, the more I like them. I went on a little summer vacation and spent a ton of time outside in the sun, and let me tell you, before these, I had to squint even when I had sunglasses on. But these matte black prism sapphire polar sunglasses protected my eyes, and I think I looked pretty great as well. I was able to stay outside for hours rather than getting beaten down by the sun like I have in the past, and now I am confident that when training camp comes around, I will be able to keep both eyes on all the positional battles. Oakley is changing the game, and it's time for you to discover a whole new world of possibilities. They are suited for everyday eyewear with frames and lenses allowing to be an extension of yourself, an expression of your personality, more than meets the eye. So make a sunglasses upgrade today at oakley.com. Oakley even offers prism lens technology what is that you ask it is a proprietary technology to oakley and available for everyday settings as well and if you want to know more you can do your own research at oakley.com when you wear oakley there is more than meets the eye try it for yourself i've worn a lot of sunglasses and i can assure you that oakley is not only the best looking but the best quality as well head on over to oakley.com for more information today oakley express your style and build a look that's made for you
So to your question on the cornerbacks, uh, the top three guys with the most coverage snaps graded by PFF out of 100, 63, 64, and 57. So it was not uh, the most banner year for the cornerbacks. I am curious how many turnover-worthy plays Brett Favre had in 2009 because it, it I, at least by the traditional numbers, it is his safest season. Uh, yeah, wow. He only had 11 turnover-worthy plays the entire year, wow. which was one of the best in the entire league. That's like Philip Rivers and Drew Brees. That's actually better than Drew Brees that year. And consider that Drew Brees had the number one offense and barely turned the ball over ever. Uh, remarkable for him that season because normally Favre was uh, uh, such a risk taker that he would have uh, you know, higher numbers on that. And I haven't ever looked at the 2009 PFF grades because it does go back to 2008. So it's kind of enlightening because sometimes that's just pure fluke. That's just like, oh, the guy only had five interceptions, but had 12 dropped interceptions, which happens all the time. And it, not to jump around too much, but on the final drive where, or for Favre, where they take the lead before, I won't spoil the ending because it's fun if you don't remember it. Uh, but he makes this, this throw where he gets out of the pocket, escapes a little bit of pressure and, and just launches it to Sidney Rice. Yes. <laughs> like every bit, every bit of his arm talent is just on display, but also the moxie there where it's like, you could try to kind of methodically work your way down the field. He's just like, nah, this is, this is Brett time. And <laughs> he completes, I think it's like a 64 yard pass or something to set up um, a go ahead score there at the end. But uh, just kind of circling back, something that stuck out to me that is funny now is Stephen Hauschka, 29-yard field goal. Vikings get up 20-10. to 10. Ryan Longwell, 22-yard field goal, following another bomb to Sidney Rice that Favre mm -hmm. had. These, do you ever wonder how many points teams would have scored, like the 98 Vikings and the 09 Vikings, if they just didn't kick stupid, senseless field goals and let Brett Favre try to throw a touchdown? It's funny, too, because Favre's entire career was basically played in an e era where they did kick the field goal. So it's like, I, I think that question applies to a bunch of Favre's career. But yeah, it is. It's remarkable how much the game has changed as far as the, the philosophical thinking as well, just since then. Because, yeah, you're right. They're kicking these. They're kicking these field goals that, in retrospect, you'd probably go for it now, or at least you would some of the time. Now, a guy like Childress, I'm not sure he would consistently, but he probably should. And then the funniest thing, too, is the one thing, and I, I think I texted you texted you this, Justin Tucker doesn't lose this game. I mean, Stephen Hauschka had been Longwell's understudy, I think, the year before in training camp. And in fact, they jokingly called him Victor the Viking, the team mascot, because he was just like always around and didn't, and they had no idea what he was doing. But um, yeah, it is. That's another thing. The legs now. Um, Stephen Hauschka replaced by a guy like Tucker, Baltimore leaves with a win. Well, you think about Ryan Longwell, and I'm going to look this up right now. I have all my notes on my phone, so that's why I keep looking down. Um, but uh, he made 83% of his kicks, Ryan Longwell. And he's one of the best kickers of all time when he retires. If he was playing now, he'd be fighting with Greg Joseph in camp to try to get a job at that percentage. I'm sure he'd be better now right. 
in the same way that any player from another era, if they were playing now, they have all the same advantages, kicking coaches and everything else. And whatever. I don't know how different the K balls are now from 09 or so forth, but Greg Joseph, that's like what he has for a career. He has like 84% and there's no one that would ever think of Greg Joseph in the same breath as Ryan Longwell for excellence. So yes, Stephen Hauschka does miss a potential game winning field goal. That wasn't that far away, maybe 45 yards, something like that, that he uh, ends up missing it. And you know, that's how the Vikings get this win. So they blew it. They were up 27 to 10 in this game and they allow the Ravens to come back. And I have to say that the, I do miss a little bit, the old school. And this was just, again, on the kind of edge of this running back battles. This was a great one. This was, and, and sometimes I get frustrated a little bit, Judd with the running backs don't matter sort of thing where it's like, it's not that running backs don't matter. It's that running backs are usually replaceable and have short, peaks and you probably shouldn't pay them second contracts. It's not that you can just go out and have any old Ontario Smith play instead of Adrian Peterson or something, right? right. It's, it's, it's not that it's usually about the price tag and how short their windows for success usually are and how beat up they get. So just to clear that, but running backs mattered in this game. I forgot with Ray Rice, how thick he was. He mm-hmm. was like, shifty Barry Sanders kind of shifty at times, but also dudes bounce off him. And with Adrian Peterson, and then this is what I want to talk about a little bit with Adrian Peterson, because, because Ray Rice begins the comeback. He's got this 22 yard touchdown where the Vikings are just falling off of him for a guy who's like five, seven or something. It's pathetic though, man. The lack of tackling on that. I can just hear a young Judd Zolgad in the press box being like, look at this tackling Scoggins. What are they doing? Uh, But Adrian at this time is, I I think his 09 season is kind of interesting. It's not the best statistical season. He is a little bit more used by Favre on those checkdowns and things like that. But when you see the way he was able to accelerate and the attention that he still was drawing, like that brought it together. And I, this was one of his best games of that season where he broke out for multiple big runs. And then you, you see throughout the game, so much attention being drawn to him. And it, it became a uh, AP cliche, and it applies to Rice as well, but the violence which they run with, like the absolute head of steam, like dare to tackle me. But, I mean, this was, you know, in Peterson's entire time here, there were certainly far more impressive statistical years. But it was the perfect year because he had a quarterback with a bunch of weapons you couldn't just stack the box or Brett Favre would rip you apart, as as you saw. Because teams basically picked their poison a lot and said, we are not going to let 28 beat us, which is fine, but then four is going to. So um, we get so caught up in stats then and now, right? Like with Kirk. Oh, stats were down in 2022. But yeah, but they won 13 games. I'll take 13 wins uh, over garbage time crappy stats. And that was the Peterson thing, too. I mean, this was the perfect season offensively because he was an absolute bell cow, probably at that time the best running back in the entire league. You know, the Vikings had a tight end that could block, a tight end that could catch, Harvin. And the only thing now is, what if you were to put that offense in today's game with Percy? Because that's my other question. 
I mean, Percy Harvin was used in a lot of different sort of packages, but that would be, the uptick now would be so different. Um, Percy Harvin would have, would have been, an, would be an absolute nightmare now, but this offense had a lot, including a really solid line going for it. And I think the first three years of Percy Harvin are three of the most impressive to start a season. And then it just never materialized Absolutely. for many reasons after that. But with the fact that offensive coordinators have gotten even more creative. And I, I think they really were with Harvin. Sometimes it's like we kind of fall in love with some new trend and forget that people were doing it before mm -hmm. or that it came and went. And with Harvin, there are times where he lined up in the backfield, actually kind oh, yeah. of quite a, quite a bit. And, yep. and they moved him around. Uh, Chester Taylor makes a few appearances in this. So teams using guys to their strengths and their situations and Harvin was a guy that they would put in the slot. Now we talk all about slot receivers underneath passes to get the ball in guys' hands. And again, that didn't happen a lot in this game because Favre was either throwing shorts with tight end or launching the ball. Um, but I also think that, that the big personnel, the personnel versatility where they could bring in Harvin and Barry in, or they could go to the two tight ends. I thought that made things really difficult on the defense, especially from a running perspective, because they could run out of any of those looks. And I just think, when we remember Adrian Peterson, we're going to remember the long runs and everything else, but the, the fear of God that that man struck into a defense every time. And they did have an, a very good offensive line in 2009. And you just see how little space he needed to be at full speed. That's yes. the thing that you just, in your mind, you kind of remember like, Oh, it's great. Or you see some highlight reels or whatever. But when you see play to play a five yard gain, but how fast that happens with him, and when we were talking about like the Mount Rushmore Vikings running backs and everything, like just a reminder watching this game. Oh yeah. It's, it's Adrian. And then like a hundred miles. And we can then start talking about those other Viking running backs. It's just so not even close, but the farther we get away from it, if we're not seeing like Randy Moss highlights every day on Twitter, right. it's, it's easy to kind of forget what that looks like. And I think this was a nice refresher to like, wow, at his peak, because the last time I saw him was 2016 and that was not similar no. to the version that was in 09. No, and the the only thing that Peterson struggled with back then was actually being patient enough to wait for his blocks. So if he did, he was unstoppable. Cause, but And that's why, so he always said that he didn't really like ha having a fullback that much. But they often had one because he could follow him. In fact, in his uh, rookie year here, 2007, if I'm not mistaken, it might have been the one and only season of Tony Richardson, the fullback who had been with the Jets and Chiefs and was a consummate professional. And basically at one point in time, Tony just said, follow me, just follow me. Like wherever I go, you go, because I will, I, I know when to wait and I know how to block. And so like if you gave Peterson the map, he was damn near unstoppable. And that And this game totally shows that, absolutely shows that. Yeah, this is just a complete unstoppable offensive performance on the whole um, for both teams. I had a great moment in the fourth quarter, early in the fourth quarter of, and, and tell me if you had some of this, remember that guy moment. And for me, that was Mark Clayton, but not the Mark Clayton that played right. for the Dolphins, who was yep. an excellent player, but the Mark Clayton who was basically like just a guy for the Ravens, but had this flash in 06 where he caught like 60 passes or something he was but it was like wait remember the other mark clayton and then Derek mason shows up 
Yep. And he catches a touchdown. And and again, like the Vikings defense is just flailing and falling apart at this point. But yep. Mark Clayton and Derek Mason catching touchdowns in this game was definitely my like, this is why we watch old games to remember guys like that moment. And Todd Heap, right? At tight end? Yes. Yes. For Baltimore Todd Heap. Yes. That's I had forgotten about. And, and you know what? At that time, that guy, as I recall, was pretty damn good. But I'd completely forgotten about him. And was the was the blindside guy the left tackle who was trying to block Jared? Yes, and getting Michael Orr, killed. right? Michael Orr. Was oh, he was just getting murdered. I mean, Jared. That's the thing too. Is you know, for all all we can and should praise guys like Favre and AP. You forget just. I mean, that addition in two thousand eight in the trade with KC. You forget what a monumental seismic shift that was for a team that hadn't had a guy that could rush from the right end. I mean, Erasmus James, Udeza, like the last guy who had successfully gotten home quite a bit before Jared Allen was Lance Johnstone, who was a situational guy. Like he was a third down rusher. And then you get Jared who one won't come out of games and two spent his entire afternoon back then in the backfield like that. His game, when you go back and watch that, it is, if it's not dominance, it borders on dominance. Actually, I wonder if I can look up how many pressures Jared Goff, or not Jared Goff, why would I call him Jared Goff? Jared Allen had in that in that game. I know he had, over the season, he had 64 pressures, which is a pretty good season at the time. He should be offended by that. Let me look this up. So it only, it gives him five, which is a really good game along with a sack, couple of hits, couple of tackles. I would argue that the total impact from Jared Allen was more significant than five, but I mean, five is still a great game. If you did that every game, you'd be incredible. So, and that's, that's why Flacco's performance is so wild to me and really tells you about score effects a little bit. Cause they're down 27, 10 and yes. Flacco finishes the game with 385 and two touchdowns. The Vikings start to melt. And here's where I had another thought though, because Ray Rice catches a touchdown toward the end. They take the lead 31 to 30, but Something I thought of was how we don't really have a Dan Deardorff broadcaster anymore. Like there was a, a kind of a run. And I think this was part because of John Madden, but also Deardorff was great where it was just these football guys. And mm-hmm. Dan Deardorff is just losing his mind at this point when they're coming back. And I used to really enjoy the intensity of Dan Deardorff and I haven't listened to a Deardorff game in quite some time. So they had this really kind of, it was clear that they were trying to repeat like the Summerall and Madden just with another, you know, big guy and a kind of a smooth broadcaster. So you have the like Percy Harvin, you know, kind of calls or Derek Mason where it's not like this huge call from the play-by-play guy. And then Deardorff comes flying in with just the most intense football commentary they were kind of going that way with tony romo and then maybe lost their way a little bit but it just it feels like the the personality but big massive football guy yes. has kind of been lost i don't know if you like deardorff but i loved deardorff growing up actually you know what he was really really good i remember so he was he was working at KMO, kmox radio in st louis uh when he was a cardinals as I recall, offensive lineman, and he transitioned right to the booth with uh, CBS. Then he got the Monday Night Football gig, 
And then when he left there, went back to CBS. And as I recall at that time, if I'm not mistaken, their number one team was Nance and Sims, I think. I think Phil Sims was the top team. But yeah, there was, I've always contended this. So like that Madden group had to be offensive or defensive linemen or linebackers. Because Matt Millen, if you recall, before he took the Lions job, he was in line to be the next, you know, John Madden. Like, and, you know, with the sound effects, Deardorff was not as exaggerated as, as Madden was, especially as Madden progressed and became almost at times a character of himself. Um, but, yes, it, it's great. In fact, there's the one call where it's right before a huge Peterson run, and Deardorff goes, yeah, it's Adrian Peterson time. And then the next thing, Gumbel's like, Adrian Peterson's going to lose. And then you go, oh, man, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's great. I sort of miss that just in a vacuum. I don't miss it every week. But it feels like now, announcer-wise, right, it's gone to more of the quarterbacks and, like, the cerebral guys as opposed to the guys who are just like, just get in the dirt and show me some football. Yeah, and you had the Brian Baldingers. They, yes. were, try- they were trying to Baldy. develop the kind of next guy like that with a Kevin, what was his name? Kevin Moss or something, like this former Chiefs offensive lineman. Like they were always trying to find the next John Madden. I don't think they ever really felt Bill uh, Moss. found it, but oh, Bill Moss. I think it was okay, Bill yeah. Moss. Yeah, just a big gruff that just kicked. <laughs> and, and this is back when th- those guys didn't immediately retire and drop 80 pounds. So they, oh, yeah, right. So they'd come in the booth and you'd be like, yeah, I remember that guy. Now it's like, who's that? That's Steve Hutchinson. He weighs about a buck 20. Yeah, I know. I saw Steve uh, out at TCO. I'm sure you did too. And it, it does not uh, does not look, look like he used to. And, oh. well, and J- Joe Thomas is the ultimate example of that. I, watching an old game the other day and just even the close-up on his face, like that's not Joe Thomas now or anywhere close. Uh, but anyway, I, I thought you're right that he could be so intense that you'd be like, okay, stop. That was a three yard run. You yeah. need to stop losing your mind. There is a play in this game that also is reflective of sign of the times. Kelly Washington, kind of a random receiver for the Ravens goes over the middle and just gets laid out. And of course, Deardorff's like, awesome hit. Great job. Whatever. I think today there's flags coming from every part of the field. Oh yeah. Roger- Roger Goodell probably runs on the field and pulls the safety off of, uh, you know, out of the, out of the dome at that, you know, if, if that had happened now, but also I'm glad they've gotten rid of those hits. I know it's really hard for the safeties. And this was a big debate with Harrison Smith a couple of years ago when it seemed like the league was kind of out to get him a little bit for the head hunting. Uh, But those types of hits, like you watch how hard Kelly Washington gets smacked and that was just routine and something you could totally do. Oh, yeah. And I think he stayed in the game, which was not a good idea. And they used to do that a lot more. And it's amazing how far we've come in a short period of time, because to me, and I'm sure to you, 09 doesn't feel like that long ago. And yet we could kind of see those uh, reflections of how the game is different. So this, so then, uh, you know, Favre comes up with this incredible throw to Sidney Rice to put them ahead 33 to 31. And then here comes the Ravens again. Hauschka gets the kick, misses the kick. The Vikings go to 6-0. and What was the feeling when they won this game? Because, I mean, obviously, like, from an objective standpoint, there's stuff to criticize here. You let them back in the game and so forth. But at 6-0, and uh, and I remember the 2016 5-0 and and what that felt like, 
six and oh had to feel like this team is legit. Yes, in fact, I believe the next week, week seven, they went to Pittsburgh and lost their first game, but that was quickly erased by the Monday night game against the Packers and Aaron Rodgers at the Metrodome, which was, um, so I had forgotten, or perhaps I just didn't pay attention, how bad the Vikings defense was in this particular game. Um, Because we were also, and not surprisingly, so caught up in the Favre Magic Carpet Ride experience. And it was cool. Look, I mean, it took weeks, well beyond week six of 2009, to acclimate yourself to seeing Brett Favre in purple. You know, seeing Brett Favre still come out in Lambeau and get as booed as loud as anyone I've ever heard get booed in a Vikings jersey still remains one of the most jarring things of my career because it just didn't, like, it, did, it doesn't make sense in your brain. Um, so I think there was nothing but excitement because it's like, and, and again, keep in mind in this town, how many guys, you know, in the last, I don't know now, 20 years or so, how many guys have taken the football or baseball or puck or basketball and said, we're not going to lose. Cause you had the feeling when the Vikings, you know, that, that the incredible thing is it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a surprise in, in part because we had seen Favre do that to the Vikings, but I, I hearken back to 91, Game 7, Jack Morris. You know, he doesn't come out. He stays in. Incredible win. Um, if you're of a certain age now, it's almost damn near impossible, and you you were probably pretty small if born in 2009, but it's probably really, really do- doggone hard to appreciate that, like appreciate the cockiness. You know, for his Kirk, eight comeback wins in the fourth quarter, but one that was off the charts weird for Kirk. Like, that's not the normal Kirk. And two, there wasn't this hubris from Kirk. Like, there was this far sonored back on the field, starting with that ridiculous week three pass to Greg Lewis to end the game and give the Vikings a win. Favre sonors on the field, and it's just like, oh, yeah, my arm? I got, I got this. And so, for as bad as the defense, and again, I, I had forgotten, as bad as the defense looked in that game, it wasn't a concern when you had Brett Favre and a team that at that point in time, and for a long time, I think, looked like a team of destiny. Um, as far as the Vikings teams I've covered, because I, I didn't uh, technically cover the 98 team, this is easily the biggest letdown. Like 17, which we covered together, was fun. And I was surprised they got blown out. But I wasn't shocked they didn't get to the Super Bowl. Um, this is the one where I've always said... I think if they make the Super Bowl, I think they beat the Colts because they were they had enough firepower that it was certainly not um, unrealistic. And again, if you go back to the conference championship game in 09 and look at the stats, the Vikings kicked the Saints' ass. So it wasn't like when we covered the game with a link and it's like, what the hell is this? It was a, you should have won that game. Um, but yeah, this this was just like... It just, the season, until the end when it got sort of weird, the season just kept crescendoing at this point. And this was this was another in the markers, the checkpoints of, oh my God, this team is legit and Brett Favre is great. Yeah. Well, first, uh, you're giving me way too much credit for my age. I, I was 23 when this happened. So I uh, I do remember this season quite well. Okay. Um, so, but, uh, but I appreciate that because I have, with my birthday coming up, I have been feeling a little bit old. Well, recently. I'm glad to help you out. I'm um, glad to help but... you out. But I mean, there's a lot of young Vikings fans who would have, you know, just a sort of a recollection, perhaps, 
of this team. And I'm just saying, we, you know, when's the last time in this town we literally had a guy say, I'm not going to lose this game. And no, you believed him. To- yeah, that's totally right. And, you know, I guess what I'm curious about from you, though, because I wouldn't have lived here and, and don't have quite the perspective on that season the cynicism level of Minnesota sports fans right now, which I totally understand is well-earned yeah. uh, by the teams as they are told by, you know, new regime after new regime that this time it's going to be different. And, but last year I felt it big time. And look, I was at the center of it when they're going 13 and four and we're talking about negative point differential. And every time they played a great team, they got their doors blown off uh, in the second half of the season. And then the loss, but after the loss in green Bay, I just felt the entire wind go out of the sails of the Vikings fan base because they knew it wasn't going anywhere. And then they were right. And there's been so many times where it's like, even with the twins or the wolves, like, Oh, you're playing uh, Houston in the first round, huh? You're probably going to lose. And then right. they do. And the twins obviously in their playoff uh, lack of success to put it very Minnesota. Nice. Was it that way then? I, or, or is this like always been a thing or was that like everybody was just believing? Um, Boy, I feel like a lot of people believed. Now, I had seen, I had covered Favre. So I had seen, now I did not cover the 2007 um, conference championship game meltdown against the Giants at Lambeau, but I did cover the 2003 playoff loss at Philadelphia, where I think the Packers went up 14 rip. That's the fourth and 26 game. But in overtime, don't forget, Favre threw what looked like a punt that was picked up, if I'm not mistaken, by Brian Dawkins. And Akers hit the field goal. And so I had seen Favre break hearts before. So I was I was actually not shocked that he broke hearts. I am shocked the Vikings fumbled like four times that, that day. Like, like there's a lot of factors to why the Vikings lost that game. But I want to say, Matthew, that it felt like there were a lot of people that really believed. I mean, that was a, offensively, that was a damn good team. And my, I guess my, Cynicism didn't come as much at that time from from Minnesota sports, which it would now. It came from, I've seen Favre go down this path before. And, you know, his career is littered with times he has decided to make decisions in huge games that are just baffling and just terrible, including that pass. But no, I, I think there were a lot of people that thought, you know, to go back to 2009 and 98, I think there were a lot of people that thought, no, you know what? This team has a legit chance. And again, what's so frustrating is if you look at the damn box score from the Superdome, they did. They did. But, but I mean, Percy Harvin hadn't fumbled all year. He fumbled. Berrien had an inexplicable fumble. I mean, there were just so many things about that that I think I, – I actually think that that game has played a role in people being as guarded with their sports hearts as they are now. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is that 09 and the certain amount of people in the huddle, uh, which is illegal oh, and gets you a five year penalty. Uh, those things, I mean, that is, I, I don't, I don't think anything compares to Gary Anderson. I mean, there are a few things in all of sports from all the teams hasn't that compare to Gary Anderson. <laughs> yep. Not only hasn't missed all year, but that was the best team in football. It was historically yep. great. Um, but this 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 Vikings team had an argument for being the best team in football and seemed to have 
that angel on its shoulder the entire year, especially on Brett's shoulder coming off of what happened in New York. But I agree with you that it would have been way less shocking maybe than Gary missing that he threw that interception more having Vikings fans seen it many times in the playoffs. They probably went, Oh no, it showed up. And I'm sure that even though they were trying to keep it out of their mind, that it was in the back of their mind that at some point Favre could throw that horrendous interception and cost them and not make the Super Bowl because he had done that. And that's why he wasn't in Green Bay anymore because right. he had made one more Super Bowl. They never draft, you know, another quarterback or whatever else. Um, right. So he had kind of earned his way there a, a little bit, maybe like not of the same level of Case Keenum where each week we were talking about it, though. It doesn't seem like that was the, the case. No, that's um, no, no pun intended there um, that, that people would believe. But I, I think that played by the time that I arrived in 2016, this fan base is so cynical about everything. Mm-hmm. And some, sometimes, and you're like the king leader of this movement, but, oh, come on. Uh, oh, come but, on. but, so, but sometimes I, I'm sure that it can be like for fans overwhelming, but I do think that this uh, plays a big role. Is this just to, to put a bow on it? I mean, I think that this was one of the peaks of that season to see everything that they could be offensively. The the 9 season, is that in your mind clearly the second best team that the Vikings have had past the Super Bowl years to 1998? The 87 team, which lost three consecutive games with replacement players, which wouldn't have lost those games, but unfortunately, well, I... The Vikings just didn't care. Like this, like the strike hit, and they're like, "Yeah, we got to field a team." Where's Tony Adams to play quarterback? Um, that team was actually really good, and that's the team, of course, that went and played the Saints, and then blew the drawers off San Fran. AC and Anthony Carter, marvelous game, and then they lost on the Wade Wilson not so great pass, Darren Nelson drop. That team probably factors in, but I would say that that was the second. I would say 09 is second to me, just because you got the last gasp from Favre. And look, going into training camp, that team needed one position, quarterback. You know, the quarterback would have been Tavares or Sage. And I've always said, the last practice in Mankato, before Brett shockingly came back after Mankato, the last practice, um, it's one of the worst practices I've seen. Balls were being skipped on the ground. And but but it was weird. In in retrospect, we should have known something was up because in retrospect, that practice got done, and Childress wasn't angry. And it's like he knew, he knew. He's like my guy is coming. Um, but yeah, that's that's one of like I would say the heartbreaks on if we were to break down NFC Championship season game heartbreaks, right? Ninety eight is one. Two thousand nine to me clearly two. Um. I personally think that two that that the two thousand the the forty one donut game is probably three, um, and then I would put the seventeen game if if I'm going to not use because I I would put eighty seven third if I included that but that's not what for, uh, forty years ago or thirty five years ago so um, yeah I would put this one two thousand nine I would put it clearly too just because of the presence of Favre was basically supposed to be the magic potion. And ultimately Brett was Brett at the end of that. Right. I I don't think I've ever categorized 17 as heartbreaking so yeah. much as just disappointing for everybody. Like 41 one donuts, most... same way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, I, yeah. I, 
if you get your drawers blown off, I can't go heartbreak. Right, right, right. It's I, I, I thought that, well, the only thing that probably really hurts is that they started off the game with a marvelous drive and a touchdown pass to Kyle Rudolph. And then they actually got a stop and got the ball back. It was like, oh my gosh, are they going to the Super Bowl? And they're like, no, they're not going to the Super Bowl. But I, yeah, I agree with you. When you get smacked, then you just weren't worthy of facing the opponent. You had to go on the road anyway. And you know, it is what it is. I don't look at that as heartbreaking so much as just kind of, well, you know, I guess you weren't good enough because you got absolutely killed. Uh, last thing, your is this your favorite season to cover of any that you ever covered? Oh, no. oh absolutely. Absolutely. It's not even close. It's not even close. And, you know, Favre was, I, I've always made this comparison. Favre was football's Elvis Presley. Um, it, it was on a, I can't even explain it. Like it's, he's not, he was a celebrity. Like he was not an athlete. He was not, it was not like, oh my God, he's really good. You know, Peterson was a phenomenal talent, but Brett Favre, Brett Favre was like going to Graceland. It was the most surreal thing um, to cover him, to have him do press conferences where he would get up and give you at least one or two scoops because he didn't like Brad much. And so he would purposely leak stuff. Uh, but it was like, I, I mean, it's as close as I've ever come to covering what would probably amount to a Hollywood celebrity. It was like that. And, you know, in 2010, you had TMZ and and uh, at the time, Deadspin with the pictures and all that. But I mean, that just, that speaks to how how important Favre was. And so, yes, it was the most fun. Um, and it, it was the type of year where you're like, these aren't going to come around much and i would argue that while 17 was fun 17 didn't come close like it it wasn't close the only uh similarity as i see between 2009 and 2017 is with very different quarterbacks the magic carpet ride came to an abrupt end and look when when far through that pick I, i've told this story before but i had told doogie i had said at my birthday party i turned 40 that November, I had said, because Dukes is like, he's going to be MVP. It's unbelievable. And I said, watch out. I said, he's going to break your heart. And and after Favre threw that pick in the Superdome, Doogie was like four rows behind me in the old press box there. It's changed since. And before I did anything, I ran up. I grabbed him by the shoulders. And I said, I told you he would break your heart. And then fast forward, 17 how often on air did we talk about the Keenum thing is going to end and it's going to end abruptly at some point. And, and we got like pushback. You guys are just bleep holes, blah, blah, blah. When that ball got tipped and returned for a touchdown, I remember I looked at you and you looked at me and we're like, there it was. And the funny part about that is he also threw a, there it was interception in the Minneapolis miracle game that was forgotten that opened the door yes. for New Orleans to come back in Great and point. that game. We also looked at each other and went, there it is. That's that a great was point. the one that, that Mike Zimmer was afraid of the entire season long. So uh, anyway, well, this is the reason why I wanted to do yep. a random old game of the week because it's, a very fun conversation. And I enjoyed both you and I going back, watching through that game and uh, talking about what we came away with from that one and, and an incredible season to cover. So uh, Judd, great to get together with you again. I'm sure that we will do it at some point very soon when you Absolutely. are getting your uh, suntan out at uh, training camp in a few weeks. So uh, I appreciate 
the time and you taking the time to go back and watch the game as well. And uh, we'll talk again soon, man. Thanks for awesome. doing this. Thank you.